Hello, this is Monocle Reads. I'm Georgina Godwin, and my guest today is Nuri Turkel, a Uyghur American lawyer, human rights advocate, and foreign policy expert. Born in a re-education camp in Xinjiang at the height of China's Cultural Revolution, Nuri was granted asylum in the United States in 1998 after traveling there to study. He now works as the chairman of the board for the Uyghur Human Rights Project in Washington, D.C., and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi last year appointed him to the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom. He's pushed Congress to ban imports of cotton textiles and other goods from Xinjiang. Nuri is also a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute and a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. His new book, No Escape, The True Story of China's Genocide of the Uyghurs, is a shocking account of the Chinese government's persecution of the Muslim minority. Nuri Turkel, welcome to Monocle Reads. Thank you so much for having me on. I wondered if we could start with your own history and the fact that you were born into this re-education camp. Why was your mother there? Uh, my mother was uh, taken into a re-education camp, which is much like the one ones that uh, Xi Jinping's China set up today. Uh, she was taken in essentially because of her relationship to her father. Sounds odd, strange, but guilt by association. My maternal grandfather was a uh, Uyghur patriot who were very involved in, in political freedom for the Uyghur people for decades even before that happened. So um, she was taken in and while my father uh, was sent to a forced labor camp performing agricultural labor in an area three hours away from uh, my place of birth, Kashgar. My mother was pregnant when she was taken to the re-education camp. She was subject to verbal and physical abuses as somebody who was raised in a very conservative environment. Hearing even suggestive words about her pregnancy was hurtful, very offensive to her. She got injured uh, during her pregnancy, uh, during her incarceration. She delivered me while she was in, in cast chest down. Anyone who can imagine who has been to the labor room in any hospital can imagine how difficult and extraordinarily painful for her to go through that process. To make the matters worse, uh, we were taken back into the camp after I was born. Uh, so I spent the first several months of my life in this world with my mother in a re-education camp. And ironically, I've been fighting to close down, uh, raise awareness. Uh, the industrial-scale concentration camps that uh, Xi Jinping's China set up. Why? Why has he done this? Let's, I think, maybe to help us understand, you could tell us a little bit about the, the Uyghur people, your culture, your history, and so on. The Uyghur people are uh, Turkic and one of the ancient peoples around the world. Uh, they predominantly reside in Central Asian region. Uh, historically, Uyghurs practiced different type of religion, Buddhism, shamanism, Christianity, and they have been practicing uh, Islam since 12th, 13th century. To the Chinese government, not only Uyghurs' lives pose a political threat, the homeland that the Uyghurs called or have been living and residing for decades, for centuries, a very uh, important strategic location for the Chinese government that has rich natural resources, agricultural products, and now solar panels, 
anything you name it, more than 80 global brands have been apparently using forced labor, uh, Uyghur forced labor to feed the global supply chain. So there's an economic uh, significance to the central uh, government in Beijing, the communist government. There's also a geopolitical significance. As you look at the map, the Uyghur homeland but that makes one sixth of the China proper, four times the size of the state of California, was size of Western Europe, uh, closer to a European audience to figure out how big this land mass is, uh, has about 600 miles uh, international border, uh, anywhere from the north, Russia down to India, Pakistan. That significantly uh, makes it convenient for Xi Jinping's China to export uh, their cheap products. And also it helps uh, Xi Jinping's China to achieve or realize the China dream, which is part of the Belt and Road Initiative. And more specifically, this is not something that has been discussed uh, as often as they should, which has very strong racist connotation or context. When you listen to the, the Chinese uh, official propaganda materials, public speeches, even some of the uh, top secret speeches now become a public uh, document, uh, including number nine document, which is included in the Wikipedia, that the Chinese government always feel or perceive uh, the Uyghur ethno-national identity is something could be a root cause for potential political uh, upheaval. So they felt very insecure about Uyghurs maintaining that ethno-national identity. Therefore, that ethno-national identity must be um, diluted, destroyed, or changed by force if necessary. Otherwise, this will, as long as the Uyghurs maintain their way of life, uh, ethnic pride, tradition, the language, culture, it essentially will make them distinguish, uh, distinct from the ruling Han Chinese that poses political threat. And then ironically, the Uyghur religion also perceived as a threat to the Chinese state. The Uyghur religion and the communist ideology, uh, Uyghur religion means Abraham, a part of the Abrahamic religion like Christianity and Judaism, uh, perceived by the Chinese government as something Western or foreign. That brings in the ideas, the, the values that we cherish in the Western liberal democracy, such as freedom of speech, freedom of religion, uh, freedom of thought, uh, freedom of assembly. All of those freedoms that we cherish in the Western societies or liberal democracies perceived as uh, not only threat, but also a sign of a disloyalty to the state. In China, as I profiled, profiled in my book, they are forcing Uyghur detainees in the camps, uh, even at their private homes, to recognize Xi Jinping as a new god, uh, CCP as a savior. So the Uyghur religion is a sign of, uh, perceived as a uh, sign of disloyalty, and the Uyghur ethno-national identity is, uh, has been seen as a source of potential political threat. So when you pay attention, very close attention to the Chinese narrative, it boils down to these two issues. The, all the others, uh, have been already in control under the Chinese control mm. without them committing genocide. You just describe all this beautifully in your book because, of course, you, you, you give us the history, you give us the culture, but there's also an element of memoir. There's your own story in there. And then you take lots and lots of stories from people who've actually been through this and you describe in horribly graphic terms what it is people are actually going through and I mean there's such a terrible list from from gang rape to torture and then as you say to slave labour. A lot of this got worse after the 1980s specifically at, at 9-11 and then we really saw these camps building up and there are a number of ways in which China 
controls people. And I'm so interested in the fact that AI is being used. Can you tell us more about this digital dictatorship? Absolutely. And this is something that has not been receiving enough attention around the world. Imagine that every aspect of your life, your communication, your phone calls, your online activities, your uh, email communications, your phone calls, regular line even, uh, everything has been subject to surveillance. So essentially you have no privacy at all. You have a QR code on your door that the Chinese state security can check on who lived in that house, what kind of ratings, social ratings that individuals uh, have been ranked in the government database, and also randomly on the street that the, the uh, cyber police can stop you and ask you to surrender your phone and leaving your phone to go through a data scan. And also any places like the shopping malls, uh, school entrances, everywhere has this body scan machine set up, much like the ones that we go through at the airport. Only Uyghurs have to go through that, whereas the Han Chinese waving their hands and just showing, looking at you as if you have done something wrong. This is all about the Chinese government's sense of insecurity. They think controlling is the best method, as it has been the case in the COVID uh, management. Mm -hmm. uh, recently, close to 190 million Chinese citizens have been subject to lockdown and over 40 citizens. This government is all about control. That this should shock the conscience. It should be concerning the people around the world who cares about privacy, who cares about democratic freedom, most importantly, who cares about the future. That this form of surveillance, the Chinese style surveillance, uh, pervasive, intrusive forms of surveillance now being exported over 80 countries. Several days ago, Secretary Blinken uh, delivered a China policy speech in it, he suggested exactly the same thing, that this government benefited from the international rules-based system, now using that economical advantages and technological advantages for bullying people around the world, the countries around the world, and also suppressing their own citizens. So, uh, you know, we have to ask ourselves, are we going to be okay with the Chinese-style governance, surveillance, uh, that become a new normal in the future? Or are we going to be okay with a Chinese cameras uh, because it's less expensive, such as the Hick Vision, installed in, in our schools, hospitals, in all of the public places, as has been the case in UK and the United States? Yeah, I mean, you also talk about how people's voices were recorded for 45 minutes or so, how samples of their hair was taken, so that those people speaking just in the streets would have their voices matched up so that it was known exactly who was saying what. And you also talk about how a lot of arrests were made using artificial intelligence. And these are arrests for things like, I don't know, having a long beard, using the wrong door. Tell us more about this. In April 2017, the local uh, rubber stamp legislative body enacted something called de-extremification measures, uh, which is draconian, a measure that essentially criminalize 48 behaviors that includes growing beard, restricting your female family members to uh, have a relationship and build family with within on your religion and your own ethnic group, abstention from tobacco, alcohol, sex, anything that is not in line with the Chinese uh, party official lines 
can be perceived as a, uh, a sign of extremism. Uh, after that uh, draconian measure was announced, the Chinese unleashed or utilized something called Integrated Joint Operating Platform, IJOP is the acronym. The Human Rights Watch reverse engineered that IJOP. This platform essentially used the personal data collected under the guise of medical free medical checkup, uh, under the guise of uh, encouraging folks to apply for passports, and then during the passport application, you surrender all of the previously traveled travel history, countries that you had traveled in the past, and also voice samples, iris samples. So the government, a government collected a massive amount of personal data as described by an AI expert who appeared in the same frontline documentary as I did a few years ago, essentially liking China as a new Saudi Arabia for personal data. And the government used that personal data that is collected through IJOP, as I described it in the book, essentially just spit out arrest warrant. In, in 10 days alone in the summer of 2017, at least around 17,000 people's lives are shattered because this program, this platform, essentially ordered the police to look and lock up 20,000 individuals. Can you tell us about the Becoming Family program? One of the most harrowing aspects of what is happening to the Uyghur people, the atrocity uh, crimes committed against the Uyghur people, is implanting uh, the Chinese cadres into the Uyghur homes. Uh, American scholar Darren Byler uh, wrote a long piece uh, a few years ago after his last visit to the region. So he's essentially said one million men out of the camps and one million Chinese men into the Uyghur homes. So the primary target of the Uyghurs uh, who had to be becoming family with this Chinese cadres or uh, party of Pratchik are the ones who does not have uh, male household leaders, like a husband or brothers and sisters. So they are the most vulnerable one. What they do is to send a Chinese cadres to their homes, as I profiled in a book through the interview that I had with the camp survivors. So they come and eat uh, uninvited on your dining table, sometimes just order a certain type of food. And not only that, they sleep in your bed. Just let this sink in. What kind of people would be okay with or feel comfortable with a stranger comes to your house uninvited, not only eating with you, the Uyghur are, Uyghurs are very hospitable people. They may not object if strangers coming to eat with them, but just think about the ugliness, the offensive nature of somebody sleeping in your bed mm -hmm. and making your children to spy on you. That children's honest answer in some instances, resulted in parents being disciplined in the lighter uh, nature when the seriousness sent to the camp. So this is another thing. You know, what do we look at, and what are we? What are we missing in this whole atrocity campaign? A wholesale attack that has been waged against Uyghur people, even in their private homes, they don't have the type of dignity, respect, and freedom that they're supposed to be enjoying. How complicit are Western nations and indeed Western brands? That's a great question. I, not only Western brands, uh, we consumers, including myself, are complicit in the ongoing genocide. If more than 80 global brands, including some of the brands that I used to wear, my son used to wear, uh, my daughter used to wear, then I have been also supporting this genocide indirectly. So this is on my own case. Uh, and now we have uh, find out that PPEs that 
that China has been using for hostage diplomacy, including in Europe. You may recall that the uh, prime ministers of countries like Hungary were asked to show up at the airport to receive Chinese medical aid. Uh, so those PPEs, as reported in the New York Times, made by, produced by Uyghur slaves. And also, uh, recently, we find out that the solar panels uh, sold, uh, placed, uh, sold in Western uh, countries, including the United States, and also uh, some of the environmental activists used to justify that we need to have a good relationship with China, also made by uh, Uyghur slaves uh, through the process of using dirty coal. And, and also, this is, this is the, just a consumer aspect of complicity. And then we have also university endowments. If you look at the university campuses today, unlike the other social causes, universities are essentially asylum. This might be a news to your, your listeners. In a general term, if there's something goes wrong around the world, domestically, internationally, the first noise that we would be hearing would be a university campuses. Because the universities are also entangled in the Chinese money, the endowment, the university is also very silent. Sports world, there are only a handful of maybe few athletes around the world, uh, former Arsenal player, uh, Mesut Özil, former Celtic player, uh, Enes Kanter, have spoken up. But the vast majority of the uh, sports world, uh, namely the NBA in the United States, are also deeply embedded with this genocidal regime. And then finally, we have the Hollywood. And in a general term, if can you just imagine that any country other than China locks up at least one million of its Muslim population? We've been hearing speeches after speeches at the Oscar ceremony. We've been seeing the movies made by Hollywood. It's simply because that China is the largest motion picture market for the Hollywood. They're looking the other way. And finally, the global brands, they've been lobbying against my own government during the process of legislating the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act that will go into effect on June 21, this month. So everything, and you know, the, to my country's uh, credit, the United States has taken a leadership in this uh, endeavor, but I'm looking for leadership in Western capitals. Where is France? Where is Italy? Where is Germany that have lived through fascism, lived through Nazi uh, Hitler's uh, regime, and also the countries in the Western Central Europe that lived through communism. So this has to be a global collaborated effort to stop the ongoing genocide. So this shouldn't be only concern for the United States, we shouldn't be only concerns for the Uyghur people. Mm. Now, you've dedicated your, your life to, to helping the Uyghur people. You trained as a human rights lawyer. You had to learn English to do so. And this is the first time that you've written a book. And as you say at the beginning, you approached it with some trepidation. And I just wonder about the uh, experience of writing this book. The writing this book has been both a rewarding and nerve-wracking process for me. The rewarding aspect is that I learned so much. I'm a corporate lawyer, uh, initially working on anti-corruption, anti-bribery investigation. And then I did a lot of uh, competition law related work. And then I, I, I also did a human rights, uh, uh, immigration asylum cases in the past. But during the process of writing this book, I've learned so much about the history, the Jewish history particularly, and also study the history of concentration camps. And I was so surprised and disturbed the similarities between Xi Jinping's camps and Hitler's camps. Uh, the camp that I was born is much more, you know, comparable to Stalin's gulags, 
but you know the international community letting uh, the history to repeat itself by letting this genocide entering and continuing ongoing in its sixth year. That's one uh, the the rewarding aspect that I've learned so much during the process. And then the disturbing aspect is that I've studied, I've talked to uh, camp survivors, former teachers, uh, former camp workers. It was excruciatingly painful, especially sitting through that countless hours of interview. I've even filtered out some of the graphic uh, details of those stories that have been told. And as a father, as somebody who has a mother, who has a wife, who has a, a, a daughter, I just could not fathom, I could not just tolerate, didn't have a stomach to even write some of the horrific things that I've, I've heard about. And, and, and the other thing is, I believe this project book project will eventually help the international community to see that the business partner that they've been enjoying to have a business relationship with is actually a genocidal regime. The business as usual cannot continue. So what do we do? How do we stop this? And how do you see the future? Do you think that China will bring these grievous practices to an end? So, you know, the recent events in Ukraine might have some uh, positive uh, effect in the thinking uh, of both Western leaders as well as the Chinese leadership. In a four decades, uh, for years, the Chinese uh, government uh, tried to tell the world, uh, as well as their own citizens, that the West is in decline. There will not be collaborated a response if something against China, but seeing the unity that the international community shown in response to Putin's illegal invasion of Ukraine, and also importantly, those rounds of sanctions, and also the, the international business entities pulling out of business or suspending their business practices in Russia, uh, may have been uh, giving the Chinese leadership uh, some you know, reason to think, uh, revisit. So this is why I can't emphasize enough of the importance of the international community speaking at one voice. If the United States government does it alone, as it has been in the last four or five years, then the Chinese narrative will be, oh, the U.S. does not like us to be the number one. This is why the U.S. is orchestrating this. But if this becomes a global response, as the case uh, with respect to Putin's invasion of uh, war crimes in Ukraine, then the Chinese will think twice before doing anything crazy. To the Chinese leadership, two things are extraordinarily uh, important. One, how this regime is portrayed in public. This is precisely why they don't like their leader to be called General Secretary of Communist Party. There's not such a thing called president, but they try to normalize this regime, the leadership, in line with that of the elected leaders in the Western democracies. And that's the, their image is, is, is extremely important. And then two, stability in connection with their economic interests. Their economic interest is, is harmed, where economic growth is hampered. That shows that they are not doing a good job. That creates natural resentment domestically. Mm. The U.S.-led sanctions, uh, coordinated sanctions with the European Union, Canada, UK last spring, already got the Chinese attention in response to the, the uh, upcoming uh, enforcement of the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. China is already saying that they're going to retaliate. That in of itself is a good indication that our actions has been at least getting the Chinese leadership's attention. 
No Escape, the true story of China's genocide of the Uyghurs by Nuri Turkel is published by William Collins and it's out now. You've been listening to Monocle Reads. Thanks to the producer, Nora Hull, and researchers Lillian Fawcett and Isabel Rosen. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>